Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to, no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything, from T-shirts and jeans to sweatshirts and jackets, and of course, their legendary best hoodie ever. So you can fill your wardrobe with the pieces that will get you through your spring days. Like the lightweight joggers and pullovers in the French Terry collection, or the rich and polished premium slub crew tee. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, American Giant makes something that's sure to be your next closet go-to. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Find a closet staple for every part of your day at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 240. We're doing a question and answer. I solicited questions from our audience last week. Uh, you guys sent them to our email address, mediabarbellmedicine.com, and then I, I did some more solicitation on Instagram for even more questions. So we're going to try to get through a bunch of your queries here on the podcast. We've got the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, I'm doing all right. I just uh, finished up doing some training, and it's been a little while since we've done a Q&A. <clears throat> yeah, I, well, I feel like when I, whenever I introduce you, I feel like I'm bringing in a closer, you know, like – you, that's, that's who you are. Like I'll, I lead off, you know, I, I put something in play and then you're just like, boom, hammer down. You just finish it. Uh, so yeah, I'm glad you could uh, join us. Speaking of training, you know, last week I was telling you about my behind the neck pressing. It was either last week or the week before. And I was like, yeah, it's not going to, I'm not going to post anything about it until I can press two plates behind the head. It was foretold. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I did 85 for a set of 10, 85 kilos. And I was like, I think I could press 100 if I can just get it moving off my shoulders. I'm, I think I can lock it out. And and my brain, which is mostly filled with trivialities and BS, I was like, my head will be nowhere in the way. It's behind your head. But sure enough, as soon as I go to press it off my traps. You forgot doink, about the old occiput. <laughs> the old occ occipital protuberance just right in the way. And then I was like, I'm going to keep pressing. So... Yeah, it was a PR behind the neck press with head bump. Raw with think, concussion. Yeah. Raw with yeah. <laughs> had a contra coup injury just from uh, <laughs> doinking myself. Uh, somebody came up to me afterwards and they were like, Did you just press hundred kilos behind the head? And I go, uh-huh. And they're like, Are you an Olympic weightlifter? I'm like, no, no, I'm not an athlete. I'm a power lifter. <laughs> I just, notice, notice I did it slowly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Notice it was not quick and notice my lack of uh, athletic prowess. But uh yeah, no, that was uh, that was cool. What else? I benched 190 today, just like you're back, man. I think I, that we're things are trending. We're trending here. So, a couple more weeks, we'll see what we can we can do. Uh, yeah, what is the the joke we always have? Yeah, if I could just PR all my lifts, I think I would have a PR total. So I think that checks out. Yeah, <laughs> dude. Also, let me. I just need to get this off my chest. Deadlifting with a bent barbell does not spark joy. I agree. 
And I, I think it's worse with the deadlift bar. All right, so if you're listening to this and you've never experienced deadlift, a deadlift bar, you don't know what I'm talking about. So deadlift bar, there are multiple different manufacturers, but they are in general smaller in diameter. A traditional power bar is 29 millimeters and a deadlift bar is 27 millimeters. Sometimes they're 28, but there's no standardization here. And they're typically longer, whereas a normal power bar is seven foot long. A deadlift bar is a little bit longer. And so the weight is spaced out further from where you grab the barbell. And so it's whippy. It, there's some deflection. Uh, but when it's bent, it feels like that whip is what worse, whatever it is. Like it just, it like, it, it doesn't spin. Like the bar, the collars don't spin correctly. And it just kind of like catches and it just feels funky. Ugh. These people just keep dropping the weights at the gym, like just from lockout. And I'm like, it's bending the bars. <laughs> and I, yeah, I just hate it. I think, I think though, like I said, I think it's worse on a deadlift bar. Do you think that's true? I don't know that I've pulled on a bent deadlift bar. I feel like, I feel like it takes, it, it, it's almost impressive to like permanently bend a deadlift bar. What have you been doing with it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're dropping it right with steel plates. Yeah. And so the thing is on like a steel plate that's not calibrated, for example, the internal diameter is not 50 millimeters, which is the outer diameter of a sleeve. And so there's a bunch of play there and I, th I think it just bends or they're just leaving it up like on a deadlift jack for too yeah. long and it's kind of like bends and they're doing rack pulls, all sorts of weird stuff. And I'm just like, can you just not? please <laughs> not know. a problem i run into frequently in the old garage and the home but, gym uh, yeah. yeah yeah this is what this is what i get for working out in public but uh yeah things are going well so we'll see what happens uh other a few announcements here we do have our upcoming los angeles super seminar and you wonder why we're calling it a super seminar well we took the best from both worlds our pain and rehab seminar which was a previous standalone seminar and our two-day health and performance seminar. We just mashed them together. So we, myself, Dr. Derek Miles, Dr. Austin Baraki, the rest of the Barbell Medicine crew will all be in Los Angeles at Monarch Fitness Club at the end of this month. We have a few spots left. So if you're, we're on the fence about coming and hanging out and you can get to Los Angeles, uh, look, there's a lot to learn and we get some lifting instruction. You get to uh, do the lift, get coached and ask questions, all sorts of stuff. So a few spots left there. You can check that out. It's linked in the show notes or description, however you want to uh, describe that. Uh, also, the ma'am, this is a Wendy's shirt, is going to be live shortly. I, I I wore it the other day, and the gym, it was lit. The people <laughs> were like, this, you, is, <laughs> this is a great, the people were like, this is a great shirt. How do I get it? Well, it'll be up on the website uh, soon. <laughs> I, I do think the next one, I think it has to be your face, the meme, the meme face. And then, I, I don't know, I think we got to do it like the Obama uh, campaign. It's All like, right. <laughs> I don't know what the slogan's going to be. We'll figure that out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, some new merch if you want to rep Barbell Medicine in the gym. You're, just, you're guaranteed PRs. It's just science. Uh, also, just a request for some new segments. It's kind of like workshopping this idea. Like, how do we make the podcast better? How do we increase our audience so, uh, you know, we can get the word out? And so normally what we do is we pick a topic and then do a deep dive into the research and then kind of distill that down for you and give you some practical take-homes. So that that's all fun. But, you know, Austin and I do share a bunch of what I would consider <sighs> angering material from the internet. We share that amongst ourselves. And so I think a, a segment like a quack watch segment would be cool. And you and I have got kind of tossed that around. I, and I think what we could do in order to like serve our audience, like send us the stuff. Don't DM it to us because it just gets lost, right? But if you if you read something that a doctor or a you know professional in space said, and you're like that doesn't seem right, send it to mediabarbellmedicine.com, and maybe we'll uh, do it on a Quack Watch segment. Uh, same thing with mailbag. You have questions you want us to answer, and you can't be bothered 
uh, by signing up for the forum that we're on, we're active on every day, or our Facebook group. You're just like, hey, I don't like any of that. But answer these questions on your on your podcast. If it's a good one, maybe we'll do that. We'll have like a mailbag section. We'll have a quack watch segment, and then we'll have like the meat and potatoes, or if you're a vegan, the tofu and lentils uh, of our podcast be the same. Uh, th- I did that off the cuff. That was that wasn't my best work, but <laughs> you can send all that to uh, mediaparbomedicine.com. All right, so we are going to answer your questions again. These were uh, submitted to either the uh, email mediaparbomedicine.com or from Instagram. Uh, we'll just we'll just get it going. All right. So the first question is: the difference in muscle gain between powerlifting or bodybuilding style training important? And I, I think just an overview here is that if you're if you're comparing a strength focused to a hypertrophy or muscle size focused training plan, there's lots of overlap between the two, meaning that you're going to have a lot of exposure to compound lifts, that's exercise that involve more than one joint, you're going to use a variety of rep ranges specific to the task or test that you're ultimately going to sort of uh, measure your progress by in powerlifting or strength-based training. It's usually going to be a lower rep range, but not always. And the proximity to failure for the compound lifts, those involving more than one joint, are going to be fairly similar, somewhere RP6, 7, or greater. Um, So you'd be closer to failure uh, at higher RPEs. The biggest difference is going to be the amount of isolation work in in either program. A strength-based program is going to have less isolation work, single joint uh, and direct work there. And it's going to, and because of that, it's going to have less total sets taken either to failure or very close to failure. So RP nine or 10. There's some other, you know, uh, things that you may not see in a strength focused program that you might see at, for various periods of time in a hypertrophy program, things like uh, supersets, giant sets, uh, things of that nature, pre-fatigue sort of work, um, partial range of motion, uh, failure to, to failure sets where you do something like biceps curls, do a set between 10 and 15 reps to failure, and then keep going at, you know, 50% range of motion until failure, failure, then 25% range of motion until failure. And that's a set. Those things are almost exclusively isolated to hypertrophy type programs, but Again, there's a big overlap. And if you look at like a Venn diagram of these things, the, the middle is, it's going to be pretty similar. Um, that said, because of the overlap, strength training is going to produce a lot of hypertrophy, ideally. Uh, and a hypertrophy-based program should produce an improvement in strength in the movements that you're training and the rep ranges that you're training in. Um, for example, I did a program very similar to our latest Bodybuilding 2 template that we just released. My program was almost the exact same as that. And I got stronger in my squat, my bench press, and my deadlift by doing that in the rep ranges I was training. I wasn't doing singles. So I don't think my like one RM actually improved. I don't know because I wasn't testing that, but I increased the amount of weight I was using week over week uh, on most of the time. And so uh, that's kind of like a little personal anecdote. Austin, what do you, what do you think about the overlap between the two different types of training programs. I think people might perceive these things as being more different leading to questions like this, just because we have distinct words for these things, right? These are just like labels, the word powerlifting or the word bodybuilding. But if you really think about, you know, obviously we, our content, our, our experience, our quote unquote expertise, if you can call it that it leans more in the powerlifting realm. And we have talked at length about how massive 
massive variation exists in the kind of training approaches that people might respond to, right? So some people might bias a little towards higher intensity work and might not do as well with a ton of training volume, some in the other direction, some might prefer more specificity or respond better with more specificity. You know, some people do SBD every day, like top single work, whatever other people do very, very little specificity. And they just might do, you know, a a heavy single or something on the lift relatively infrequently. So there's a big spectrum in terms of what people can respond to when working towards powerlifting style goals. And I think there's likely to be a similar spectrum of variation in response uh, uh, as it relates to hypertrophy and bodybuilding style training. I will say that, you know, if you pay attention to anybody from the bodybuilding scene, you definitely get the sense that there's just a fundamentally different approach to training when they have a weight loaded up, be it on a selectorized machine or a free weight or anything, their mental approach, their intent, their plan for that set is in many ways different than the mental approach is in a powerlifting realm. And so there is some differences from that standpoint, but honestly, like if you think there, if you, you know, just like big name bodybuilders throughout history that you can, that you can think of, some of them trained kind of like powerlifters, right? And then, and then some of them trained very, very, very much not like powerlifters. Some trained, you know, ultra high intensity, some, you know, ultra high volume, like classic videos of, of Ronnie, where he was like the first big dude to go in and be pulling 800 plus pound deadlifts or whatever as a bodybuilder. It was like, that's not how bodybuilding style training is, quote unquote, but it's like, it can be, you know? So I think it's just, we're all lifting weights and we're selecting for different adaptations. But I think that, you know, when you talk about the overlap or the Venn diagram, I wonder how much of this, entire, you know, schema that we're thinking about is enveloped by individual variation in training responsiveness and things like that, you know? Yeah, that's probably significant. And and I I think that it's, it's kind of like what what you were saying with the intent for a power lifter, somebody strength focused, the thing that matters most is the weight on the bar, particularly during a test or competition. I mean, that's really what you're training for. Whereas in hypertrophy, it's the effect of the exercise. So the weight matters less. It's just a tool in order to get the muscles close to or all the way to failure so that you can generate growth. And so you're less likely to, or you should be less sort of willing to compromise technique, range of motion, tempo, et cetera, uh, in an effort just to lift more weight because adding five more pounds to your lat pulldown but limiting the range of motion and, uh, you know, the tempo being off in such a way that compromise hypertrophy is not worth the trade-off there. Uh, and so my whole takeaway is that on the margins, like if you were a, a legit powerlifter, you get signed up for a meet, go into a meet, whatever, or you're a legit bodybuilder, again, signed up for a show, get ready to go, or, you know, muscle mass development's the most important thing to you. Yet there are going to be differences in outcomes on these margins. A strength-focused program is going to produce more improvements in strength in general, than a hypertrophy-focused program. And a hypertrophy-focused program is going to produce greater improvements in hypertrophy than a strength-focused program. But again, both are going to produce the other to some degree. Um, and I will finish by saying, I don't think that if you're, strength, you're a strength-focused individual, meaning that getting stronger is like your number one training priority, I don't think you need to do like bodybuilding-focused blocks of training in order to increase muscle size so that you can then become stronger. I think the hypertrophy is sort of a result of continuously engaging in strength training. There are ways to uh, set up a program that it increases muscle size but doesn't increase strength, like blood flow restriction training, for example, would be a way to do that. And there are ways to increase strength that don't really increase size, like focusing almost exclusively on 1RM you know, sort of test and skill development is uh, not a great way to get bigger muscles, but is a great way to get better at the test, which in this case is a 1RM. Um, 
And I think long-term, when you look at the relationship between strength and size, the sort of correlation tends to fall off, meaning that just because somebody got bigger doing a program compared to another person who didn't get as big, I don't know who's stronger at the end of the program. I, I expect that if you look at a, you know, 10,000 people doing the same program, that those who gained the most amount of muscle mass are likely to have gotten the strongest only because that's sort of indicator of the response to the training program being the sort of quote responder. But I don't know that like small differences in, oh, this person gained, you know, 5% more muscle mass than this other person who only gained 2% more muscle mass. I don't think that really predicts strength performance. Um, but in a cross section, I definitely think that, you know, muscle size tends to be predictive of how strong somebody is. You think, would you agree with all that? Yeah. Not knowing anything else. Sure. Yep. I agree. Okay. Question number two, what do I reference to know if an activity I'm doing counts towards conditioning? This was submitted by Jake D. Uh, well, we just did this three-part series on conditioning that kind of covered all of that. And so for a deep dive into like, what is cardio? How does cardio work? How to dose it? What is, should the intensity be? If you want to deep dive into that, you can review the, those three podcasts. I believe it's episode 238, 237, and 236. Um, yeah, so you just don't click pause now, but like after this podcast, you can like go back and check those out. Uh, but in any case, I think the biggest question here is like, how hard should the effort be in order for it to count towards conditioning? And I think the best tools we have for this are RPE or heart rate. RPE standing for rate of perceived exertion and heart rate obviously referring to how quickly your heart is beating during an activity. Uh, so anything like RP five or six would be considered moderate intensity uh, conditioning. And so that's on a one to 10 scale. So anything five to six would be moderate. Anything seven or greater would be vigorous. Uh, and so during this moderate intensity or RP five to six, uh, sort of, uh, conditioning, your heart rate is going to be between 65 to 75% of your heart rate max, uh, which you can calculate by taking 208 minus 0.7 times your age. That's a way to sort of predict your max heart rate. Um, so any, <clears throat> any activity that either qualifies, uh, based on heart rate or RPE would qualify as moderate intensity activity. And then for vigorous intensity conditioning, that's RP7 or greater or greater than 75% of your max heart rate. Uh, the heart rate data here isn't super awesome, but it's good enough to get you started. And so I think anything easier than that still counts. You know, it's still conditioning. It still has some benefit, but the magnitude of those benefits and the subsequent increase in cardiorespiratory fitness that we associate with not only improved performance, but improved health trajectory is probably not as great than if the intensity was at this sort of minimum level, either moderate or vigorous. Would you, uh, would you agree with that? Yeah. I think I may have also interpreted this question slightly differently. I mean, cause there's a, there's some baked in assumptions to your answer. Um, because you, you talked about, you know, heart rate and RPE and, and, and the talk tests and things like that. Um, as far as whether this conditioning task counts as conditioning and I'm reading it more as like, does this activity that I'm doing count as conditioning? And that's something that we kind of talked about a bit in the podcast. And we also got some follow-up questions. We got some questions on the forum where people are wanting to do like, you know, kettlebell circuits or high intensity barbell circuits, or, you know, basically like lifting weights and wondering if just because their heart rate gets up to a particular level, if, you know, if, if getting your heart rate up to the same level, regardless of task selects for the same 
conditioning adaptations and it does not. And that is because heart rate, there's no, the, 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 my kind of answer to this question, what do I reference to know if an activity counts towards conditioning? There is not one single kind of like biomarker measurement. Um, again, conditioning is just a word, but more so what's more important here is the concept of what is the physiology of what I'm doing? What are the demands that I'm putting on my body? Is this something that is being more demanding of my, you know, mitochondria to make energy with oxygen um, for a sustained period of time? That's more what we're getting at with, with conditioning here. Or um, am I selecting more for higher intensity, anaerobic efforts, power output, stuff like that? That's a different type of activity that you'd be doing. That's like, you know, maybe your higher intensity intervals, maybe some of those tasks that I was just describing. Or is the activity that you're doing, you know, ultra short duration, ultra high force output. And then we just call that lifting weights. And we call that strength training or powerlifting or whatever you want to call it. Right. And so we have these kind of words that we apply to things, but it's like, Hey, if you're doing a set, you know, we've, we have known people who are like, I don't need to do conditioning because a set of five on the squat gets my heart rate up. And it is like that in no way is selecting for the same adaptations because your physiology does not have the same demands on it. And just like everywhere else, the adaptations are going to be specific to the demands. And so, um, you know, I, you made some great points, assuming that we are do, we have a shared understanding of, of, of what this conditioning task is. Then I agree, you know, with what you listed out in terms of RPE and heart rate and talk test and things like that. But I also want to make the, te- the the point that like, you know, just because somebody doesn't like doing a particular thing, doing, you know, a lot more lifting weights and just saying, well, my heart rate's at 120 when I lift weights, it's not the same thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. There's some interesting sort of uh, inflection point between like how much like muscle force is actually required to do the activity and then subsequent sort of adaptations. Again, there's no, like you said, there's no single biomarker here. Like you couldn't just test that, but it's relatively low for it to transition between being predominantly like anaerobically focused uh, and then being aerobically focused. We're talking like 20 to 30% of max voluntary contraction. And so you think about, oh, I'm doing kettlebell swings for, you know, intervals. That's conditioning. Yeah, there's some conditioning stress there. I'm not going to say there's zero because this whole thing's a spectrum, right? It's just less than if we were talking about like cycling or rowing or erging or rucking or swimming, whatever. Um, because again, just the sort of types of demands, the sort of constraints or limits on what you're doing are are different in that case. And so if I had to pick a type of activity that's going to maximally improve your cardiorespiratory fitness, I'd be thinking about something monostructural that you can do continuously for a long period of time. Um, again, cycling, uh, r- jogging, uh, rucking, uh, rowing, swimming, whatever, something like that. And then I would just gradually move down the line until eventually you're all the way at the other end of the spectrum, which would be like lifting weights very, very quickly, you know, or very heavy or something yeah. like that. Right. And uh, yeah, just different demands and different sort of uh, limiting steps as far as like doing the task. Okay. And again, just would reference those three podcasts, spend some time on those. Be good. Listen. Okay. Third question. This is from Nick J. Is there any relationship between carb intake and sleep sleep quality? I recently have been having some decreased sleep quality, which he describes as restlessness, frequent wake-ups, etc. I looked back at my nutrition and noticed that I had been eating fewer carbs recently, not intentionally, just passively. I have since increased carbs back to normal levels, which he reports as 30 to 40% of daily calories, and have anecdotally noticed the restlessness has decreased alongside the re-implementation of carbohydrates. I would love to hear your thoughts. Love the podcast and appreciate all you do. Well, hey, thanks, Nick. Uh, Okay, so some background info here. So sleep proceeds through a cycle consisting of three stages of non-rapid eye movement, so NREM sleep, and then a final stage of REM sleep. And the, you 
when you sleep, you basically go through cycles of this sort of pattern that lasts a total of 90 to like 110 minutes on average. Uh, sleep quality can be measured objectively and subjectively. Uh, objectively, that refers to like polysomnography and actigraphy. These are proxies for sleep, but not sleep itself. And just as a sidebar, there's like a bunch of stuff in the biohacker sort of space about like, oh, look at what caffeine does to, you know, different aspects of an EEG, for example, when people are sleeping. And it's like, you, why do you care about that? Because it, that's, just a, that's just a readout on a strip of paper. What you really want to know is, are people more or less rested when they wake up? Do they have more or less sleep, for example, when they're doing a sleep diary or if they're in a sleep lab, like more time spent to sleep versus less and, you know, how do they rate their sort of sleep? That's what you would really want to know. So that's objectively like how you can measure these things. Subjectively, uh, again, these are components of sleep diary that the people are like uh, referring to. So like total sleep time, sleep onset latency. That's how long it takes to fall asleep. Sleep maintenance. So staying asleep after falling asleep. Sleep efficiency, the ratio of total sleep to time in bed. Rating of satisfaction after a night's sleep, stuff like that. Some of these things can be uh, also be objectively measured if somebody's in a sleep lab. But if somebody's just reporting these uh, you know, in a sleep diary, they tend to be we classify them as subjective sort of measurements. Okay. So some mechanisms that have been thought by which carbohydrate intake can like affect sleep. So in your brain, your brain is composed of a bunch of neurons, or as my neuroanatomy professor, Dr. Tolbert would say, neurons. And I don't know, look, if you're a neurologist and you're listening to this or like somebody heavily involved in like neurological research, can you please message me and, at, and tell me if it's neurons or neurons, because if it's neurons, shout out to Dr. Tolbert. He was trying to like get me to say it correctly, but I just, I just can't. Uh, but in any case, your brain is composed of, you know, billions, if not trillions of different uh, neurons or neurons, depending on <laughs> where you come from. And um, the, the activity of these neurons and brain activity is directly related to glucose metabolism by those cells. So effectively, when you have more uh, sort of that brain activity going on, they're burning more glucose because the brain primarily runs off of a steady supply of glucose. And when they're le when the brain's less active, uh, glucose metabolism goes down. And in fact, when you're sleeping, glucose metabolism by the brain drops by about 20%, for example. And despite only weighing about 2% of your total body's mass, the brain is usually responsible for like 20% of your resting metabolism. Uh, in any case, so it's thought like, oh, well, if you have a different supply of different amounts of glucose in the blood, that could affect sleep, for example. There's other mechanisms that involve uh, things like tryptophan, serotonin, melatonin, etc. The idea would be, oh, if you eat a high-carbohydrate meal, particularly one that's low in protein or absent of protein, that the brain will take up more tryptophan and therefore be able to create more serotonin and melatonin. And like serotonin is super interesting with respect to sleep because serotonin in some phases of the day is actually a wakefulness promoting sort of neurotransmitter and other phases of the day. It's like a sleep promoting sort of uh, neurotransmitter. Melatonin is only produced at night during when it's dark outside. And so the idea was like, oh, if you can produce more melatonin, for example, maybe you'll be sleepier. In any case, these mechanisms have not really played out uh, well in the research. Uh, particularly when exposed to different levels of dietary carbohydrates. So I'm just going to like ignore all of that. It's just, that's been in the literature for at least 50 or 60 years, but there's been really no evidence showing that like a realistic diet, dietary pattern that somebody could eat would really alter levels of tryptophan, serotonin, melatonin in the brain. 
and that that subsequently correlates to better or worse sleep quality, for example. It's just like you could, you'd have to have a very contrived meal, one that's almost exclusively carbohydrates, and the carbohydrates that you're eating could not contain a significant amount of protein, which if you think about normal carbohydrate sources, most of them contain protein. That's um, a pretty long mechanism for why that is the case, but that's people's eyes are already glazed over. So let's just move on that these mechanisms do not really explain any sort of impact of glucose intake or dietary carbohydrate intake and sleep quality. Let's look at some actual sort of outcome studies. And there's been a recent meta-analysis, I believe this was from 2022, uh, it's a meta-analysis of 11 different studies uh, for a total of 179 people. There were 11 different data sets on carbohydrate quantity, so how much, and five different data sets data sets on carbohydrate quality, which they uh, rated as like glycemic, different uh, types of glycemic index. Um, the high carb intervention group, this ranged from 130 grams of carbohydrates per day to 600 grams of carbohydrates per day. And the low carb range, uh, low carb intervention ranged from two grams to hundred grams of carbohydrates per day. Overall, there was no real effect on total sleep time, sleep efficiency, or sleep onset latency. Um, there was a small signal that the lower carbohydrate diet lengthened the stage of N3 sleep, which is that non-REM, that third stage of non-REM sleep as you start to drift into deep sleep. Uh, and that increased dietary carbohydrate intake prolonged REM sleep slightly. But the sort of clinical relevance of those changes is unknown because we're just, we're talking about a few minutes here, right? And it's like, who cares? And I don't care. Not that I don't care about people's sleep. I think it's very, very important. I just don't think that dietary carbohydrate intake outside of like frank malnutrition or frank overnutrition or something that would cause like gastro you know, gastroesophageal reflux or something like that from somebody eating way too close to bedtime who's sensitive to that. I just don't think it matters. Uh, I don't know. Austin, do you have a take on carb intake and sleep quality? I think that uh, the more frequent conversation that I have around eating and sleep quality relates to people's timing of their last meal as it relates to sleep time that I think probably has a more consistent or I should say a more likely effect. I wouldn't even say more consistent because plenty of people, you know, eat relatively late and can sleep just fine um, and, and others less so. And so I think that, you know, I take a similar approach to this question. The, the two possibilities that I think of is that um, <clears throat> this observation that he made was relatively coincidental and his sleep happened to get better after he also just happened to adjust his, his diet back, or maybe there was some other dietary variable that might've mediated this versus this potentially being a really individual type phenomenon. And when we have things that are really individual, then the effects, um, tend to get washed out when you do studies of people, um, cause some people will have an effect, some people won't, and it kind of ends up looking kind of neutral. And so if, you know, if he really cares about nailing this, you know, himself, he would have to kind of continue doing a, you know, a, a on off kind of experiment on himself. I don't really know what the point of all that would be um, to see whether he as an individual is somebody who tends to sleep better at a particular level. And, and I don't even know that it would just be carbohydrates. Maybe it's the specific type of foods. Maybe it's something else. There's just way too many variables here. And I think that broadly speaking, I would not assume an impact, you know, population level on an individual level it becomes even harder to figure that stuff out. And so I wouldn't sweat it. So yeah. I'm happy you're sleeping better now. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And also just like insomnia in general is very common. I think like a lifetime prevalence, you know, 
depending on who you read, is anywhere between 50 to 60% or, you know, 75 to 90%. Again, just depends on who you read and what population you're actually looking at. So it's not, yeah, yeah, it's not (laughs) unusual that an adult would have a period where sleep is compromised based on a number of other factors or even just bad luck, quote unquote. So to attribute it to just a small decrease in carbohydrates, like I went from 30 to 40% of my daily intake to total calorie intake to 20 to 30%. I'm like, I don't know that that would be the smoking gun I'd be looking at, but again, individual is going to individual. So maybe. Okay. Question number four, is the clinically effective dose the same uh, for creatine, beta alanine, caffeine, ashwagandha? Is it the same for people of different body weights? I'm a pretty light female, 50 kilos, who just bought a pre-workout to improve performance. I'm guessing being a light female, I'm uh, a very light pre-workout taker. Just wondering if I should be dosing these things differently. This is from Brittany M. So just uh, before we pop into this, Austin, when you think about weight-based dosing, what is the purpose of that? Like why would somebody want to dose something based on their weight versus some sort of like standardized dose otherwise? Yeah, I think that for the sake of time, we can we, we won't need to go through the entirety of like how pharmaco dynamics and kinetics work, but (laughs) um, drugs uh, and supplements, substances that you ingest will distribute throughout the body differently. Um, I think that's like the bottom line. And it matters whether they distribute, um, you know, into the bloodstream and whether they're like bound by proteins or distribute more into fat mass and and their half-lives. There's all sorts of variables that impact where drugs go, what concentrations they achieve, and in con- and, and kind of similar to that, what concentrations are necessary to have the desired effect that you want. And so in a situation where you have a substance that, you know, distributes throughout the body in a set way, um, a given dose might end up leading to different concentrations in the tissue of interest, meaning a different concentration, be it in the blood, or if you're targeting a particular area in that area, among people of different body sizes. Um, we can even see this, uh, you know, impacts of adiposity and, and total body water and all sorts of other things that can impact the way drugs are distributed throughout the body and to d- particular tissue compartments. Um, so that's kind of like the, the underlying concepts there that, uh, that's probably about as deep as I'm willing to go <laughs> into those topics here, but that's the idea when we do weight-based dosing for things. Yeah. And just as an aside, before I pop into like the different constituent components that she was talking about for a pre-workout. I will just say this, that the idea of a pre-workout, the whole point of it would be to increase the ROI somebody's getting from their training, meaning that they're taking it before a workout because the components of the pre-workout improve performance during the workout and or improve the gains that they get from said workout. And so it must be dosed ahead of time. And as far as the actual ingredients that we have good data showing that you must take these things before a workout in order to get that benefit, that's pretty much limited to caffeine and maybe nitrates. Like creatine, for example, you can take it whenever you want. doesn't seem to matter. Beta alanine, you can take it whenever you want. doesn't seem to matter. Ashwagandha, to the extent that it works, and we'll talk about that shortly, doesn't really matter when you take it. It doesn't have to be before a workout. So a pre-workout, really the main thing is caffeine and then maybe nitrates uh, for this particular list. Uh, outside of that, you're just talking about a daily supplement that you would take that otherwise should improve the ROI somebody's getting from their training. Okay. So now let's go through these constituent components. First is creatine. Creatine is an amino acid formed in the body, uh, usually uh, or primarily in the liver and kidney. Uh, You can also get it from consuming uh, meat, particularly red meat, and also via supplementation through like creatine monohydrate, for example. Uh, When you supplement it, 
or you ingest high quantities of it otherwise, uh, it does seem to increase the stores of creatine phosphate, which is an energy uh, 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 source of energy in the muscles. Also can increase the hydration levels of muscle cells, for example, which is an anabolic signal, meaning that it can cause muscle growth or the absence of it would actually uh, attenuate or reduce muscle hypertrophy response to exercise. It's also involved uh, in signaling some regulatory factors involved in muscle fibers, uh, for example, like satellite cell uh, sort of signaling. And so all of that uh, are like the underlying mechanisms for how does creatine actually work. As far as weight-based dosing, we do have data on that. Uh, suggesting that if you were going to load creatine in order to sort of increase the muscle cells content of creatine to supraphysiological levels, the dose would be 0.3 to 0.5 grams of creatine per kilogram body weight per day. And so that's a pretty high dose. Uh, that's the loading phase would take place for like five to seven days. And again, that seems to increase this sort of uh, amount of creatine that people have stored in their muscles to superphysiological levels within a week. You don't have to do a loading phase. It just takes a little bit longer. Instead of one week, it'll take two to three weeks to sort of reach that superphysiological state with the lower dose. And then also kind of um, doing that. Uh, loading phase does seem to increase the risk of gastrointestinal side effects. People might feel nauseous. People might have diarrhea, uh, for example. And uh, again, it just kind of depends on how you respond. But the maintenance dose would be 0.03 to 0.05 grams of creatine per kilogram body weight per day. That's sort of maintenance dose. You never have to cycle it or taper off it or whatever. You just take it every day. Um, and so people always ask, they're like, oh, should I take creatine even on days that I don't work, work out? And it's like, yes. And only because that's how it's been studied, meaning that the studies that do find a benefit in creatine supplementation, they're giving it to the people every day. So I cannot swear to the fact that you could just take it on days that you train. If you train three days a week or four days a week or five days a week, and maybe you, t you know, take a holiday on days you don't train. I can't speak to that because that, to my knowledge, has not been investigated, uh, certainly not to a robust level. Um, and again, it doesn't seem to matter when you take it. You just got to take it every day. So people are like, oh, should I take it with carbs? Should I take it? Should I avoid taking it with caffeine? It doesn't really seem to matter here. Um, okay, so that's the story on creatine. With respect to beta-alanine, beta-alanine is an amino acid in food such as fish and meat and is a precursor for carnosine, which regulates intramuscular pH, also regulates calcium levels, and does seem to have some antioxidant activity. Uh, it seems to provide benefit for high-intensity exercise lasting 60 to 240 seconds after dosing it for four weeks or more. The dose used in most studies is 3.2 to 6.4 grams per day. Uh, people seem to report having this sort of tingling or temporary numbness. They call it paresthesia, which I hate, by the way, in the literature. Like, oh, yeah, you could get this paresthesia. And people are like, wait, what? And it's this sort of numbness, pins and needles sort of sensation that people are getting. Same thing that folks got with niacin, that sort of niacin flush. You can split the dose to avoid that. Um, there's also like sustained release formulations of beta-alanine that also reduce that sort of risk. Um, but again, timing doesn't seem to matter when you take it, and there's no weight-based data here. So none of the studies are like, oh, we tried to dose this based on people's body size or body weight. And so I can't really recommend a weight-based dosing because that data just doesn't exist. As far as caffeine, that's the next sort of constituent component of interest here. Um, oral ingestion of caffeine, it's rapidly absorbed into the bloodstream and typically peaks within 30 to 60 minutes. Uh, caffeine elimination 
So some of those pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics that you were referencing, it varies widely due to genetic differences in liver metabolism. Uh, but with doses of three to six, uh, sometimes up to nine milligrams per kilogram body weight, the half-life is generally 2.5 to 10 hours. You think about that, like that variance in half-life, like, oh boy. So people are like, I can't have a cup of coffee after 9 a.m. or otherwise I'm awake all night. And you're like, no, no, you're over-exaggerating. It's like, well, that that liver, that cytochrome <laughs> that oxidase. <laughs> that's right, yeah, yeah. It could be not working so well. Um, but in any case, the weight-based dosing here is 3 to 6 milligrams per kilogram body weight. And that's usually based on tolerance. And like, are you caffeine naive, for example? Um, and also preferences. Some people like a lower level of arousal. Some people like a little more. Uh, there was a person who's known to both of us who tried to max out his dose of caffeine prior to a powerlifting meet. I believe he took 900 milligrams of caffeine prior to his opening squat attempt. And uh, the gastric, the gastrointestinal side effects there were significant. I believe he described them as gastric dumping, which... <laughs> I will also add, after taking 900 milligrams of caffeine, I suspect his heart rate was very high and he did not finish that powerlifting meet very well conditioned. Very well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. So three to six milligrams per kilogram body weight is the sort of dose. Uh, in general, I tell people start around 200 milligrams, which is about two to two and a half cups of like a normal size coffee. Uh, and you take it, you know, 30 to 60 minutes before exercise and then kind of assess your tolerance from there. Um, nitrate is the next uh, constituent component. Uh, small amounts are produced by the body. It's also found in vegetables, particularly things like beetroot. So if you've been thinking about taking beetroot extract or beetroot juice or whatever and heard about that with respect to exercise performance, we're really just talking about nitrates. It may reduce blood pressure for folks who have elevated blood pressure or hypertension. It also seems to affect oxygen cost of exercise, seems to reduce it. So there seems to be maybe some performance increase there. Also some stuff have to, having to do with fatigue and whatnot. The doses that are studied in the uh, population or in, in studies uh, looks, between, looks to be between 6.4 to 12.8 milligrams per kilogram body weight, which works out to be somewhere between 440 to 870 milligrams for a 150-pound person or 580 to uh, a little over a gram or 1,000 milligrams for a 200-pound person. Here's the problem, though. When you look at supplements that have nitrates in them, have beetroot extract, beetroot juice, whatever, could be on the label, a bunch of different forms, it is very difficult to get a standardized dose of nitrates in there. And I know this because we had to go through this with PeriRx. I was like, hey, I want at least 500 milligrams of nitrates and 12 and a half milligrams of betalanes, which uh, also seems to be this constituent component of beetroot uh, extract that is associated with increases in performance. And we had to source uh, a very, very uh, good manufacturer who, you know, makes sure that that dose is present in each uh, batch of their uh, beetroot extract. But if somebody just has beetroot extract or beetroot juice on their supplement label, you don't know how much nitrate they're giving giving you. It's just almost impossible because no other manufacturer is really doing this. I know that again because we had to go through this whole whole thing. So um, as far as the weight-based dosing, yeah, 6.4 to 12.8 milligrams per kilogram. If you're getting 500 milligrams of nitrates, that's pretty much what you're looking for in a dose. Uh, it looks like it's better if you take it before a workout particularly for that reduced oxygen cost during um, activity. Uh, but otherwise, it doesn't seem to matter when you take it if you're just taking it for like blood pressure lowering, for example. Although I would not recommend taking this in isolation for <laughs> blood pressure lowering effect. Agree. Agree. Okay. 
Uh, protein was another uh, sort of constituent component uh, or supplement that she was asking about. The dose here, it, there's good weight-based data here, and we think 1.4 to 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day split up across three to five meals that are spread out by three to five hours in between. Um, the thing here is that people, particularly in the health and fitness industry, and Austin, you can speak to this, they go off on protein intake. They're like, you got to eat more protein. More, we need the more protein. That's how you maximize your gains. And if you're not enough protein, you can't, you know, can't get bigger, can't get stronger, or whatever. And it's like, the average protein intake in the United States is like one gram per kilogram body weight. People are like getting pretty close to this already. It's just a little bit more to quote optimize your ROI from exercise. So like, it's maybe one scoop of protein more. Like it's just people don't have to, people think they have to go overboard and eat like 200 grams of protein per day. And it's like, I don't even eat that much. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? I mean, I think that probably there's, there's two, two things here. One is that I suspect that, you know, that average figure that you quoted, there are probably some alternative protein sources that I might prefer that those folks consume <laughs> compared to what the average person's, you know, if they are consuming that much, the, the, the average sources are probably not great, uh, in terms of, you know, health promoting nature of those particular foods. And then the other aspect is, you know, we have a lot of people, even in the industry, people who we know who are like huge on pushing, um, you know, extremely high protein intakes while, uh, you know, severely under training, <laughs> I would say. Um, and certainly, you know, this is an area that I think that we've probably modified. We've not probably, we have modified our, our position on over time. I don't really expect that we'll be reducing it a ton uh, further from from here. I think that we have decent enough evidence that this is probably a reasonable target for most people, you know, who are otherwise healthy looking to, to get the most they can out of their training and things like that. And then at the elite level of performance, then sure, there's probably some some other benefits to be had by potentially going higher in some situations, certain medical situations where you might need to alter the composition, potentially go a little bit lower in, again, infrequent situations. Um, but yeah, I think that most folks probably are putting maybe a bit more emphasis on this than it deserves. And I would pay, you know, at least as much attention to the overall dietary pattern, the food quality, and then training. <laughs> yeah, training, sleep. And then I'd yeah. be like, okay, now what's your protein intake? Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Uh, oh, last thing to say on protein. I, if you're hitting that 1.4 to 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight per day, and that's total body weight, by the way, it's not like ideal body weight or lean body mass or whatever. It's just total body weight. That's pretty much how this has been studied in the research anyway. Um, it doesn't really matter where it's coming from, whether you're vegan, vegetarian, or an omnivore or whatever. You're getting a high enough dose of essential amino acids to really drive muscle protein synthesis, prevent muscle protein breakdown, et cetera. Uh, if you go lower than that, I'm probably more concerned with the sources of the protein, but at that dose, that sort of 1.4 to 1.6 grams per kilo per day, I just, I just can't care because the total dose of amino acids is just very high and it just kind of makes up for any quality concerns. And just to, just to caveat that, or to clarify that you, you are talking about as it relates to the outcomes of muscle growth and strength. Whereas, you know, for general health related outcomes, of course, the source of that, pro that, that protein matters, we care a ton, but if you're singularly focused on which food source of protein is superior to drive these muscle adaptations than when consumed in that range, the source difference does not really have a significant impact. Yep. Agreed.
Uh, last one is this ashwagandha. This is also known as Indian ginseng, an herb used in Ayurvedic medicine. It's called an adaptogen. Uh, may have some data on lowering cortisol and reducing anxiety, and certainly some data showing some improved exercise performance, although I'm not particularly sold on it yet just based on the quality of the data. But hey, more data may emerge to change my mind, and some other people in the space who I respect are you know, suggesting that it, it is a useful evidence-based supplement, and I think that's a reasonable take too. It does appear to be relatively safe, so I'm not necessarily against it. I just remain to be convinced, but we'll see. Uh, studies on dosing, uh, the ranges of doses used are wide between 120 up to 5,000 milligrams, um, and, but most studies seem to settle in this 600 milligram split into two doses. It's unclear if long-term usage reduces its potency. There's really no weight-based data here either, so ashwagandha, I think, is just one of those things we just have a single dose, and it you know, we just don't know if you need to take less or more based on weight. So, sorry. <laughs> just kinda, that's kind of it. Uh, and, then, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to try to plug PeriRx here, but if you're wondering, like, what sort of supplements do I think are beneficial at what doses, well, it's on the label. And, and that's, that's why we made the supplement. Okay. Uh, from a health standpoint, is there any reason to choose fresh vegetables over frozen? This is from Justin S. So, just, Austin, if you're talking to a patient and they're talking about – a dietary pattern change and they want to eat more vegetables, more fruits or whatever. Do you even address fresh versus frozen in this conversation? Absolutely not. Um, more so I'm curious about what their home situation is like, their cooking skills, their food storage situation, because some of that may actually make frozen an even better choice than, you know, I already feel like there's not a reason to pick one over the other from a health standpoint, but if, you know, perishability and storage and stuff like that is a concern, then that makes, you know, frozen potentially an even more attractive option if somebody can prepare them in a way that is uh, palatable to them. Yeah. There, one of the cool studies I came across was like this implicit association test that they had people like rate like whether they favored frozen versus fresh and how they felt about it. And people, there was like almost universal negative bias on frozen versus fresh sort of produce. Uh, any sort of like transformation from the natural state led to a, like a less favorable evaluation, which is not surprising to me, but I'm like, oh, this has been codified in the literature. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as far as the actual data on like nutrient content, you know, whatever minerals or vitamins or other sort of bioactive compounds, if when you're looking at like the concentration differences between uh, the same foods, one fresh and one frozen, there doesn't seem to be a large difference. It obviously depends on what constituent you're looking at. Like there's differences between magnesium and copper, for example, or various vitamins, but the absolute difference is relatively low. And so my take home from this is like, it just does not matter. Rather, whatever is something that fits within your weekly budget for food that you have, you can store adequately and that you can prepare is those things are more likely to drive the dietary pattern towards something that's health promoting rather than like, no, it must be fresh. It must be, you know, uh, can't be frozen, never frozen, or just the same thing with like organic versus non-organic. I'm like, I just don't care. If like convincing data came out showing me that organic produce was markedly better than non-organic or fresh was markedly better than frozen. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, but can't find data on that. And uh, the, the sort of anecdotal stuff is uh, unconvincing to me. Austin, anything else you want to add here? No, I think it was a straightforward question with a straightforward answer. <laughs> All right, fair enough. All right, question number six is from Ryan K. Is there really a natural body weight that your body likes to hover around? So this forces us to talk about the body 
a fat set point or a settling point and then sort of like what all that means. There's two main models that have kind of been in the literature since seemingly like the 50s. Uh, the first one is called the set point model. This suggests that there's an active feedback mechanism linking body fat tissue, adipose tissue, to intake and energy expenditure via a set point that's presumably encoded in the brain. The set point model is uh, kind of uh, bolstered by the observation that when the system is perturbed, for example, by a period of dieting or overfeeding, people lose or gain weight, respectively. However, once dieting or overfeeding ceases, they tend to regain any lost fat or lose the accumulated fat and return to a level approximating their original body fat level. This model is consistent with many of the biological aspects of energy balance, but struggles to explain the many significant environmental and social influences on obesity, food intake, and physical activity. So this model is not really well supported by current data, but that's one model. The set point has been sort of, I don't know, handed down decade by decade by decade since the 50s. Uh, because it's not really well supported by evidence, um, a second sort of model has emerged. It's called the settling point model. And this is based on the idea that there is a passive feedback uh, going on between the size of these the body's energy stores, so body fat, and aspects of energy expenditure. And so any imbalance between energy intake and energy requirements would result in a change in body weight, which in turn would alter the maintenance energy requirements so as to counter the original imbalance and would hence be stabilizing. So for example, if body fat increases due to a higher energy intake, higher calorie intake, the rate of energy expenditure would then increase to offset it either partially or completely, depending on the individual. And we've seen that in twin studies, for example. During overfeeding studies, some twins will effectively compensate due to the overfeeding by increasing their metabolic rate to almost gain no weight, whereas other pairs of twins won't increase their metabolic rate at all, and they'll gain a lot of body fat. So there's uh, some uh, support for this because it does take into account the increased food availability and reduction in the need to engage in physical activity which is known as the sort of obesogenic environment. But again, there's sort of conflicting data on the settling point. Uh, if you think back to the Minnesota starvation study where the Ansel Keys did, where they basically starved a bunch of ex-soldiers underneath the stadium in Minnesota, this model would have predicted that as they returned to a more normal dietary pattern or unrestricted dietary pattern, that they would only gain enough weight back to their sort of previous settling point. Uh, but they did not. They were ravenous and they overshot their previous point. They sort of went ham and gained a bunch of weight. So neither of these models is like super well supported, but those are the two sort of set point and settling point models that have been kind of going on since the 50s. So what's emerged most recently is called this dual intervention point model. It's not a single point, but rather an upper and lower boundary uh, where active regulation occurs sort of at these sort of margins. But in between, there's weak regulation. So the lower bound is basically to avoid starvation. You can't go below this without active energy reduction and reduced or even completely halted weight loss. And there's an upper bound that is designed to avoid predation. You don't want to get too big so where you become prey for a predator. Uh, but, you know, since the invention of tools and fire in human history, effectively our predation risk is uh, eliminated. And so that upper bound has kind of gone wildly unchecked. But within the sort of gap between the upper and lower intervention points is a space where environmental effects and social influence, et cetera, on energy balance hold sway. So even a person with widely separated intervention points will only gain excess weight in certain environmental conditions. And to me, that makes the most sense. 
effectively, there's like a lower bound, like, okay, you can get to this level of leanness before your body revolts and says, no, sir, you can go no further. And there's this sort of upper bound that's sort of weakly defended uh, because, again, we have no real predation risk. But in between these two marks, like the environment that you're in, social sort of influences, other sort of things that are outside your direct control are like those would kind of shift you towards the upper or lower bound. And those the sort of difference between those two points is going to vary by the individual. Austin, what do you think about that dual intervention model? Yeah, I mean, I, th I find that it is plausible. I'm sure that there is criticism of it too in the scientific literature. I think, you know, we've talked about obesity and, and the mechanisms of, of body fat gain, accumulation, loss, things like that a ton in the past. It's been a little while since we've had a good you know, rant on the, on the topic, but I think we've made it clear even in our prior conversations that there is some kind of genetic susceptibility or, you know, resistance that people will inherit right to developing obesity and whatever those genes confer it, whether it is some kind of a set point, whether it is through a settling point, whether it's these dual intervention points, whatever the genetics give you, those are the things that kind of, um, uh, set you up for the outcomes in a particular environment. And so I, I think that even if, you know, there is some kind of, um, you know, set point, settling point, whatever you want to call it, um, we're still only looking at a fraction of the system here. And, you know, you, you can have an entire population with wildly differing susceptibilities to developing obesity. And if you put them in a food environment where say food is relatively scarce, or if we don't have all of these, you know, super tasty and, uh, and, and highly rewarding food items around us all the time, then people will not develop obesity in that, you know, fantasy land. Um, on the other hand, when we live in our, uh, hellscape of, <laughs> of super tasty, uh, highly rewarding food items, then we see the divergence um, among different people based on their genetic susceptibility while living in this environment, people's relative resistance to developing obesity, um, as well as their relative susceptibility to it by whatever underlying mechanism there is, the environment is what kind of unmasks that. Um, and I think that that's probably, at least for me, the more interesting way to view it because it's also the one that is, you know, arguably, if not practically, uh, more modifiable, since we're not going to go broadly, you know, gene editing people's hypothalamus, uh, but instead altering food environment uh, is a potentially more realistic uh, way to tackle this. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's possible that there's these two points that we kind of oscillate in between in a given environment. And then within that environment, our genes are really kind of determining like how we fare. And then also like, what those set points originally were based on the individual, which are likely also at least some way genetically sort of determined. Uh, ultimately, we just need less stigma and more science here. But I think people, oh, look at this person. They, you know, tend towards that higher set point. They're just lazy or dumb or whatever. It's like, eh, let's maybe, how's that helpful? It's just not. Okay. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash BarbellPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. On a, a pretty good uh, uh, transition to the next question. Do you think that GLP-1 drugs and other anti-obesity medications will have a big effect on our world? Or is the cost still too high? This is from Tariq. So I know we did a, a, a recent research review on like new emerging anti-obesity medicines, and we were kind of high up on like, man, this stuff's coming out. But my overall view here is that these agents are still underprescribed, mainly because prescribing physicians, are there's not enough of them that are like up on the science to feel comfortable prescribing them, feel comfortable adequately dosing them, managing, stuff like that. And then further, the cost is still exorbitant in the United States and there's shortages. Uh, and the administration route meaning like how people are taking these, are still not optimized for sort of like massively uh, impacting the obesity epidemic. You would want something to be oral rather than administered by a needle. You'd want it to be relatively cheap. Uh, and I think the study, there was one study that like surveyed a bunch of folks and they were like, how much would you be willing to pay per month to like, you know, take an anti-obesity medic- medicine? And they were like, 100 bucks a month. It's like, yeah, well, unfortunately, they're $1,000 or more a month. And so I think in a perfect world, if you had something that was oral that was around that $100 a month or maybe even cheaper, could be subsidized for folks um, otherwise, I think that could potentially have a big effect. And like epidemiologists would just have a field day. They'd be like, wow, since this sort of like natural experiment emerged, like we'd be able to really see like what's the impact here. That would be cool uh, and might change the healthscape in, you know, in general. But I don't know. What's your take on this, Austin? Yeah, I do not think that they will have a big effect on our world in the near future. Um, And that's as, you know, for many of the reasons that you mentioned, access, cost, um, even once people start them, not everybody is able to, you know, uh, not either able to or not everybody does even stay on them for whatever reason. Um, There's just natural attrition when you put anybody on any medicine. (laughs) Some people are going to stop. Some people might have adverse effects whatever the case is. But I do think that that costs um, is the overwhelming barrier at the moment, uh, as well as the delivery mechanisms, because many of them are injected. We do have oral uh, semaglutide, which at the current kind of FDA approved dose range of up to 14 milligrams is not nearly as uh, potent or effective as the injectable ones. Although trials have shown that it can be dosed up as high as 50 milligrams and that matches. Um, uh, some of the other more potent ones, but that's not an approved, you know, dose that's being used yet. And then on our last research review, we did talk about one of the other new oral ones. I think it was like Orphoglipron or some weird, ridiculous name, um, which is also oral. And again, but it's going to probably be expensive for the foreseeable future. I was just trying to search, um, you know, when are it, I'd be curious uh, when some of the um, 
you know, patent exclusivity is going to expire for semaglutide, uh, particularly the oral version, because I think once that happens, I think we will see a lot more uptake and adoption, although still will be limited probably by um, maybe some degree of cost, depending on how much competition jumps in the market and then people's tolerance for these things. But I think it's going to be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it until well into the 2030s um, when we start to see much more widespread uptake of oral options for these kind of things, because some will start to become generic at that, at that time. Yeah, I think loraglutide it becomes generic next summer, but it's still yeah. injectable. It's not as potent as the other thing. As it's the other injectable. Agents. It's not as potent, and it's once a day, as compared yeah. with all these other ones that are once a week. And it just, you know, you'd have and you have to dose it higher uh, um, compared to the you know routine dosing that we have more experience with in terms of diabetes management. So I think that'll get some uptake. But these are all just going to be again, it's like tiny little bits of chipping away at the issue compared to you know the global burden of obesity and associated comorbidities, for example. Yeah, maybe, you know, just, you know, we could attack it from both ends. You know, maybe we got some generic stuff coming out, some oral stuff coming out. We can adjust food policy so we, you know, less of the obesogenic environment from that standpoint. Continue promotion of physical activity. Oh, you know, maybe we just do both. A boy can dream, yes. A boy. <laughs> I am the optimist. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. Uh, question number eight. Cycling as GPP for strength athletes, what cadence, resistance, effort, and duration should I use? This is from Andrew. And so just to start this out, like when I'm thinking about somebody who's really keyed up on like getting as strong as humanly possible and conditioning uh, efforts to sort of support that my main sort of consideration after like preferences like what will they do what do they want to do what can they do is going to be how what's the fatigue cost of the activity and when i start thinking about the different the differences in fatigue costs for different types of conditioning activities the sort of heuristic i'm using is like how much total muscle mass is being used what's the range of motion that's being used through and what's the amount of ground reactive force that's being required or generated. And sort of the higher any one of those things are or some of those things are is likely leads to a higher amount of fatigue. I don't think they're additive, but those are the factors that I'm thinking of. So I would expect something like cycling to have the lowest fatigue and then like an air bike because now you're using the upper body significantly and then the rower because there's more trunk sort of flexion and extension there. Then the ski erg uh, and then running. Running is probably the highest fatigue, just given it's a long range of motion, a lot of eccentric loading, the ground reactive forces are significant, et cetera, and I'd expect cycling to cost less. So I would probably start with cycling if somebody was like, hey, I want to improve my cardiovascular fitness, but strength training is really important to me. Like, What's the sort of type of condition I can do that's going to have the least sort of acute effect on my strength training? I'm like, eh, cycling is probably it. Running or swimming would probably have the most effect running because Again, all those things I just said in swimming because most folks are not good at swimming. And so it just, because they're so inefficient, there's just a big cost there. And it's a lot of muscle mass. So uh, as far as the cadence, I would recommend, I don't have a particular cadence because this really depends on the terrain that you're riding on. 
the gear that you're in or resistance that you've selected and your individual fitness. So I, instead of like prescribing, oh, it should be this many revolutions per minute or whatever, I would just use heart rate and or RPE data. Like, how do you feel? Uh, because that's going to tell you like how the F, how hard the effort actually is. Um, but you know, kind of like we said on the conditioning podcast, you should probably start out slower and easier than you think. Um, and so we're really looking for like an RP five to six effort for that moderate intensity conditioning activity. Um, and so that's likely going to be slower and easier than you think you should be able to speak pretty comfortably in short sentences. Um, and if it's harder than that, I would, uh, back it down. As far as the duration, like how much, what's the volume that you should do, I'd be aiming for about 150 minutes a week total. And we talked about the different distribution of intensity on, on the uh, third uh, installment of our conditioning series, and we referenced this 80-20 rule. And it wasn't the Pareto rule, like, oh, you just need to do 80% of the stuff right. No, no, it's 80% of the volume of conditioning should be in that sort of moderate uh, intensity sort of zone. So RP five to six, so that'd be 120 minutes per week. And then 20% of the conditioning volume that you're doing should be in the vigorous sort of zone, uh, RP seven or higher, which would be about 30 minutes total. And that's probably where I'd work somebody up to, but not where I'd have them start. If they're not doing any conditioning, I would start, you know, probably closer to like 80 minutes on the first week. Again, this all depends on their initial fitness level and like how their training tolerance, but I'd be thinking about working them up to that sort of 150 minute minimum within four to six weeks of sort of initiating like, Hey, I'm doing cardio now. And, uh, yeah, at that point, 120 minutes of it should be moderate intensity, RP five to six, whether it's a 20 minute bout, 30 minute bout, 40 minute bout, that's all seems well and good. And then the vigorous stuff can be almost anything you want it to be, as long as it's harder than RP seven. Uh, and if you don't want to do any vigorous intensity conditioning, that's fine too. You could just do hundred percent of it at moderate intensity. That's fine. Uh, Austin, any thoughts on this? Yeah. I think that overwhelmingly, you know, the, the, approach that I'm, that I take in these, in these conversations is going to be identifying whatever modality the person's willing to do, and then trying to make sure that they're going easy enough <laughs> because a lot of people want to quote unquote, feel like they're doing a workout, but then like pushing in that intermediate range. It's like, we've talked about with strength training before, if we're doing tons of our like rep work in like the mid low to mid eighties range, it is hard and it is not fun. <laughs> and thinking about doing that day after day after day, uh, not sustainable. And the same thing, if you're going in this intermediate difficulty range that's just miserable and hard and you're trying to do it for a long duration it's just not going to work and so overwhelmingly what i'm doing is is pulling people back and and uh capping their heart rate basically and they're like but i don't feel like i'm like i don't care that's 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 where we start out and then your fitness will improve and you'll be able to go faster at that same heart rate that will be a manifestation of you know improved conditioning for example we'll get there when it's time for yeah. sure all right next question Speaking of conditioning, what are the high-intensity conditioning workouts that Derek has been programming for Austin? This is from uh, Stefan. Uh, so just before you pop into the exact sort of things, when we talk about high-intensity sort of conditioning workouts, this can mean a lot of different things. So it could be sprint intervals, so something real, real short with long rest periods. So you think like a 20-second, 30-second sprint to like a two- to four-minute rest period after that, so sprint intervals. It could be vigorous-intensity aerobic efforts that are continuous. So cycle as fast as you can or row as fast as you can for 20 minutes, like a time trial type of thing. Or it could be vigorous aerobic intervals. Hey, do three minutes at RP eight or nine, rest two minutes and didn't do it again. Or even something longer, do a 10 minute, you know, row at RP eight or nine, rest, you know, five minutes and then do it again. All of those things, anything above RP seven or so is going to be 
vigorous intensity. And so you could, you would qualify that as high intensity conditioning workout. Uh, but I think what he has you doing is, uh, is a little bit different, more so, uh, they're probably mostly vigorous, uh, like aerobic intervals than anything else. Cause I don't think you're doing actually any super sprint work. Uh, so the, the context here is that Derek has a history as a competitive rower. And so I've been doing all essentially all of my conditioning recently on a concept two rower. And I said, let me see what, uh, what he knows about training for this. Cause I don't know anything about <laughs> that style of training. And so most of my sessions are long and low and slow as we've been discussing so far. So ranging typically from 45 minutes to an hour, which I know some people might say is not particularly long. And I would actually tend to agree, uh, but long enough for what I'm trying to accomplish. And those are done at, you know, the significantly low heart rate ranges. So typically my heart rate staying in the range of 120 to 130 beats a minute um, throughout that session. My stroke rate is not particularly high, comfortable, conversational, all that kind of stuff. Um, about once a week or so I'm doing some kind of a, what you described as a vigorous aerobic kind of, uh, interval, I would say. And so for example, just yesterday, I think I did like three rounds of a two K with uh, about five or six minutes rest in between other days. I've done, you know, four minute, uh, intervals, four minutes on with, you know, I forget how much rest at the time. Those are more aerobic intervals that are, that are actually pretty challenging, but certainly not a sprint and not the low and slow. I'm not really capping my heart rate for these interval type work. And then much less frequently, um, and this was as per what I said after I did the first one or two of these, um, one day he had me do six rounds of 500 meters, uh, sprints. Um, and then most recently the other day I did eight rounds of 250 meter sprint. That was a true sprint interval. And after that, I said, I'm not doing this any more often than <laughs> like once a month or something like that. Once every, you know, two weeks to, to, you know, maybe something like that. Cause I did eight rounds of 250 meter sprints. And I think I held like a 128 pace on all of the, uh, of the two fifties, which for a rower, not particularly impressive for somebody who's not a rower. Yeah, probably, I don't know, seemed decent, but I was pretty smoked. Uh, after that, I was pushing really hard. My stroke rate was well into the mid thirties or something like that during that session. And my heart rate got quite high, um, during those intervals, especially by round eight. Um, and so, yeah, I think overwhelmingly the vast majority of my work are these like 45 to 60 minute, low heart rate, low stroke rate sessions for super easy conversational stuff. And that is what makes it something that I can stick to adhere to both because it is not absolutely miserable. And because I experience effectively no interference with any, uh, you know, lifting related stuff. And then once every say 10 to 14 days or something like that, I might do one of these much harder efforts, whether in a longer aerobic interval where I'm pushing, you know, say four minutes, six minutes, eight minutes, something like that at a time versus again, these, which are going to be very infrequent, these true sprint intervals where I can just go absolutely all out. Cause it's been years since I've done something like that compared to when I was in the pool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hard pass, just <laughs> hard, hard pass. I, I don't do any, uh, like inner, like sprint interval stuff. Yeah. Currently. I don't blame you. Yeah. But maybe, uh, maybe after uh, October, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, and then maybe things will flip. And once my strength work starts going really, really well, and I'm strong again, then I'll tell Derek I'm never doing a sprint interval again because I'm strong again, and I don't want yeah. that to mess with me. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. All right. Next question. This is from Darla. What is the best way to tackle strength training after a total knee replacement? And so let's just set some ground rules here. Let's just say the person's been cleared for physical activity. They've sort of made it through that post-op period where they're like just ranging the knee and like getting back to, okay, you can walk. Uh, for example, um, we do have an article on this. We do have a podcast on this. 
Uh, Austin, have you ever coached somebody post knee op, post knee replacement? Uh, not in the short term after knee replacement. That would not be something that I would deem to be you know within my scope at least immediately after surgery. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I outside of like my own, my own particular experience, which I'm about to relate. Uh, I would not consider myself like a post op specialist. Like immediately, like hey, your post op day two. Let's uh, let's get it going. Um, but let's just assume that somebody's cleared to exercise or start moving. They've been, you know, they saw their PT afterwards, had the, had all that. Uh, this, I did this with my dad. So Leonard had a, he ended up having both knees replaced and, um, he was really, really taken aback with how weak he felt. And he was like, I need to get stronger. And so he started squatting and deadlifting and, you know, just legitimate strength training. And, and I think my overarching theme here is like, depending on your limitations in that sort of post-op period after you've been cleared, that's going to determine your starting point. It's very similar to the sort of, you know, pain and training what do. It's like what you're trying to do is identify what somebody can do right now to train all of the major muscle groups of the body uh, in a consistent fashion um, and in a way that does not make them symptomatic. And so my dad at the time was able to squat uh, I think the very first time I put a bar on his back, well, even before that with a bodyweight squat, he could squat to parallel. And so I was like, okay, well, I, we don't need to regress any further than this because you can do this right now. So any sort of regression from that um, would be unnecessary. It doesn't mean all he did for sort of a squat pattern movement was squat. We did some leg press stuff. We did some isolation work stuff, but the meat and potatoes of his training program were squats and deadlifts and variations thereof, very similar to really our beginner template. Um, you know, loading the muscles through a relatively long range of motion, using multiple rep ranges, and sort of getting stronger in general to the extent that's a thing. But I don't think there's one particular approach that I'm like, you have to do these types of exercises. Uh, you have to do these particular range of motion. It's more so like, where are you at and after that post-op sort of PT period? And then like meeting, starting there, and the goal is to move to this unrestrict this place where you have unrestricted movement and you can return to all the activities you want to do or maybe couldn't do before even. So that's kind of like my, the lens I'm looking at this through. Yeah. And I, uh, cannot recommend strongly enough that the person who wrote this question or anybody else who is either having an impending, you know, joint surgery, joint replacement, uh, or who's just had one to Google our article on this post-operative knee rehabilitation. It's on the website. And I believe you and Derek also did an accompanying podcast for it. It's really, really quite good. And, you know, it lays out what would the expectations be? You have to pay attention to what kind of surgery did you get? What's the expected tissue healing timeline? And then once you're there and you're kind of quote unquote cleared to start doing this stuff, gaining range of motion, and then from there building skill and strength in your de desired tasks, certainly, you know, you did with your dad, some squat and deadlift work and things like that. That's great. I would also be doing unilateral work, particularly unilateral work that is quantifiable. In other words, you know, Derek has talked a lot about strength metrics, for example, particularly in the context of ACL rehab um, and, and um, those, those patients who are trying to return to sport. Wanting That's one area where we actually pay attention to some degree of symmetry. Like typically we don't pay too much attention to people's, you know, run of the mill asymmetries. But if your operated leg is only 50% as strong as your other one, 
that's going to need some dedicated work to, to bring it up and just doing a set of squats may or may not be enough to get you there. And so there's a lot of considerations, um, to get somebody back to, to full and as you said, unrestricted function and ability, um, but it can be done. And so I think, um, the details of that process are really nicely laid out in that article and podcast would strongly recommend checking those out. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Yep. Yep. Okay. Next question. Is there a rule of thumb or prism through which an older lifter can use the information aimed at younger lifters to gain an insight on how this can apply to my demographic who may be lifting for general health and longevity, but still has enough ego to be interested in strength and hypertrophy? Most texts, articles, and podcasts focus on lifters in their prime, which is understandable as that's the majority of the market. But as a lifter starting in my 60s some four years ago, I'm wondering if there's a better way to look at this. This is from Jim L. Uh, I don't know. Austin, do you think that premise is true that most of the lifting information out there is aimed towards young people just like, I don't know, trying to get jacked and and huge. I don't think that most of the information out there is this person may be living in kind of our sphere where things might feel like they are. I think there's ample information about this stuff all over the place, but in general, you know, you, how you mentioned that implicit association of like fresh and frozen vegetables. I feel like I bet if you did an implicit association as it related to strength training, people would, you know, view it as something that is like a, a young person's game, for example, that's just a very common, you know, cultural belief perception. And that may be kind of what's coming through here. Okay. All right. Well, to me, there's basically two questions. First question is, what are the differences between younger and older trainees in response to a training intervention, a training program? And the second question is, what are the differences between younger and older trainees uh, with respect to initial tolerance of training? We'll come back to that second one. Uh, But the first one is like, what differences between younger and older trainees in response to a training intervention? We do not predict that there are going to be differences in how younger and older folks uh, respond to a training program uh, with respect to relative improvements in strength or relative improvements in hypertrophy, meaning that I expect both groups to get 10% stronger, for example, after 12 weeks of training, if they are both responding accordingly. If, you know, you could have non-responders in both groups and that's going to be fairly equal sort of distribution there. Uh, But what I'm getting here is at it here is that age is not predicting how well somebody responds to a particular training program. Rather, the inter-individual differences, which are age-independent, are really going to determine whether or not somebody is off to the races on a particular program or somebody is a, quote, non-responder or poor responder to a given program. But we know that, again, the relative improvement in strength, relative improvement in muscle mass is approximately the same based on different ages, different sexes, different ethnicities, or whatever. And so I predict that people are going to do about the same as far as relative improvement goes. Absolute sort of weight lifted or absolute changes in muscle cross-sectional area, absolute changes in cardiovascular fitness, sure, those are going to vary, but the relative improvement in those factors, I think I predict to be the exact same regardless of age, sex, ethnicity. Austin, any other sort of you had a different take on that or is that No, I I agree with that take. I also wonder if if this question is kind of assuming that like there's all these young people running around starting to lift weights and then just like blowing up and getting super jacked. And it's like, there are a lot of young people who try to get, try to do this thing and do not get awesome results. And there are similarly people who get into this game later on and have shockingly good results. And so that's kind of what we're getting at is that the age variable does not predict that there are plenty of high responders, medium responders, low responders, and this has actually been studied and the distribution is super, super similar. And on average, people do tend to get the same relative response. Um, and so if the perception is that, uh, this is just for young people or young people are necessarily going to get better results than older, older folks, uh, not accurate. Yeah. 
The second question I think is more interesting. Like what are the differences between younger and older trainees in initial, as far as initial tolerance of training? So like how can you dose them initially? I think there's this thought that like older people are fragile. And like if you dose them with what you and I would consider like a, a good training program for somebody who's younger, for example, it's got a X amount of volume and X amount of intensity or whatever, and X amount of proximity to failure that that would just crush an older person and they would be injured or, you know, whatever, get bad results. And it's like, yeah, so that's been studied too. And turns out a person who's been living on this earth for a long period of time, they're pretty tolerant of stuff. And I would, again, I cannot predict the tolerance of a particular uh, sort of training program based on age alone. Uh, you could make a case based on like fitness levels or like uh, sort of presence or absence of disease, for example. And yep, that's likely to be more common in older individuals. And that would sort of compromise somebody's ability to tolerate a given training program. But if you have a healthy, you know, a uh, person in their sixth decade versus a healthy person in their, you know, third decade, I don't know that their training plans should be any different. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, when we're, when we're approaching this problem in practice, working with people, it really centers around a conversation in terms of tell me about your life. Tell me about what you do, what you have done, what you're into. <laughs> I've seen even in, you know, some of my hospitalized patients, some of them maybe come in for a fluke thing or something, but they're like a 70 year old, you know, person who's worked on a farm their entire life and still works on and operates a farm and like their handshake will crush your hands. And it's like, yeah, I think this, this person's pretty darn robust. Uh, they would be okay to handle, you know, three sets or something like that of, of, of work on something. They'd like laugh at you for, for something like that. And I've seen plenty of younger people, um, again, relatively speaking, who have never done anything physical in their life. And then if you put them through that, you know, maybe a similar workout, maybe they'd experience worse DOMS, you know, muscle delayed onset muscle soreness than, than the older person. So, so again, the, the number of times you've been around the sun is not the central variable here that we're paying attention to when it comes to dosing, but rather who are you, what have you done? What are you used to? What are you adapted to? What do you want to do? What are your limitations? What are your goals? That's how we formulate training, not yeah. so much centered around age. I think I think also there's this assumption that the stakes are very high, that if you get the dose wrong, bad things are going to happen. And I think as you sort of lower the proximity to failure, like you move further away from failure. So instead of RP9 or 10 sets, you move to RP7 or 6 sets. I'm less concerned that the dose is going to, as I say many times, outkick the person's coverage and lead to bad outcomes. But if your training paradigm is such that you're going to failure or near failure every single set, well, that's a precarious line that you're walking. And now the stakes are much higher. And I just would not adopt that training paradigm in the first place. And so, yeah, uh, I think somebody new to training, you're in the 60s and your 70s, the beginner uh, prescription, the beginner template is kind of where to have them start without knowing anything else about them. Uh, and that's the same thing I would do for somebody in their 20s or 30s. So that's just, that's how I would and start. If you've, and if you've done nothing physical ever in your entire life and you find that you don't tolerate, you know, things great right away, then that can be dropped back. Um, but that would apply also if you're 20, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah agreed. Okay. Uh, second to last question here. Uh, all right. Occasionally on your podcast, you make reference to behavior modification. Can you elaborate on this? Uh, we can. We have a, a, a podcast on this, episode 125. That'll link in the show notes. Um, also, if you just if you Google behavior modification, uh, the world the world is is your oyster at that point. There's just a ton of stuff that's going to be there. But when we're talking about behavior change, behavior modification, we're really talking about um, people 
engaging in health promoting behaviors, whether it's a change in their dietary pattern, whether it's starting and maintaining exercise, whether it's smoking cessation, better sleep patterns, whatever. That Those are the types of behavior change we're typically talking about, uh, re- reduction in use of uh, harmful substances, things of that nature. Uh, and so there are many different strategies that you can use in order to get somebody or support somebody's behavioral change. Motivational interviewing is one type of strategy where um, you're effectively using different uh, techniques with respect to interviewing the individual, gathering information from the individual, speaking with the individual in order to elicit their underlying motivations, their underlying, uh, their sort of existing resources and tools, and sort of identifying a path forward um, that they previously have not been able to identify in order to make the change themselves. The point here, though, is that everybody is going to fall at a different spot with respect to how ready they are to change. There are going to be people who are not ready to even consider a change, and there are going to be people who are like, I'm ready, just give me the keys to the city. But I think what people focus on too much is like, what's the plan going to be? Like, what, what's the workout plan? What's the diet plan? What's the sort of sleeping intervention or whatever? They jump right to, you know, here, just do this. And it's like, well, what if the person isn't ready to make that change yet because there's too many barriers uh, in the way or too many obstacles that they perceive or that they're, they're, how much benefit they're going to see is, is sort of undervalued. And so you have to use different strategies to sort of uh, unlock the person's own, um, again, motivation and then sort of... Um, you know, uh, self-efficacy to actually make the change, you know. And so behavior change is a whole field in and of its own. There are many different strategies that you can use to elicit behavior change. But when you when people ask, like, how do I convince my mom to start exercising? How do I convince my, you know, partner to stop doing this thing that's deleterious to their health? And it's like, you can't just tell them to stop doing it, right? You can't take the, the uh, you know, either the dare approach, like just say no, or the Nike approach, just do it. Because most people have good insight into whatever behaviors they're doing, not supporting their sort of uh, optimal health trajectory. But if it was easy enough to change, they would have already done it. There's other stuff in the way. And so if you're a good coach, you're a good healthcare professional, you're a good uh, uh, sort of arbiter of scientific information, uh, you're able to sort of identify where people are at in this behavior change sort of process and then deliver the correct resources, tools, skills, materials to move them along on their sort of behavior change journey. I don't know. That's that's pretty much as much as I can simplify it. I don't know, Austin, if you have uh, other stuff there. Yeah. I mean, I think you did an adequate job simplifying it. Everything else I would say would be either reiterating that or uh, stuff we said in our uh, podcast episode 125 on the topic. So definitely recommend that one. Yeah, I like that. I like that you gave me an adequate rating. I will, adequate. I will, I will take that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Lives up to uh, current current knowledge status. Uh, okay. Last question. And every uh, dude, I don't know how many times we get asked this, but now at least it'll be codified in our, in our podcast. Any book recommendations as like, I don't know, Austin, how many books do you think you read in a year? Do you have a count going? Uh, no, I don't because my uh, time available to get through books is so variable, but I don't know, maybe, I mean, averaging maybe one a month because <laughs> I'm also reading just an enormous amount of scientific, you know, med- biomedical literature and stuff like that for my medical practice. But mm. yeah. Yeah. I would guess somewhere between 10 and 15 books a year, but the amount of like met, you know, scientific information that I read is probably another, I don't know, 
30 or 40 books, yeah. <laughs> just depending on the length or whatever. But yeah, so all right, I'll give my like top few ones that I've said a number of different times, but maybe not on a podcast. So these are relatively recent as well, except for maybe a few of them. Uh, the first one I think both of us have read and would both recommend is Do Hard Things by Steve Magnus. Steve Magnus was the one of the performance coaches at the Nike Lab. Uh, he also wrote The Science of Running, which is another good book. But this book, it, yeah, you, you read the title, you're like, do hard things. So this is going to be like another like Dave Goggins thing, like, you know. Uh, just just do the hard thing. And it's uh, it's really interesting with respect to not only coaching and exercise performance, but also just like how hard things should be and how to think about them, different like sort of mindset approaches. I don't know. Was that your takeaway when you read this book? Yeah. I mean, I think he's just an, a super experienced guy in the w- world of uh, performance, particularly in the endurance context. And there's a, just a lot of sports psychology that is relevant in that realm. And even some things that I think can be kind of ported over to even strength focused activities and training and performance and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, second recommendation is going to be range from David Epstein. I actually think we did a podcast like on that. I don't know if it was on that book or just like that was part of the book review, Yeah, we've talked about it a lot. Cool book. Also, he wrote the sports gene, which if you're like a sports science nerd, 10 out of 10 would recommend if you're not a sports science nerd, but you're like curious about that, maybe save it until you've, you, you just do have to have a lot of like source knowledge to get through that book and like kind of understand when he's talking about genetic modifications and particular genes and stuff like that. But I did find that book very, very interesting. So if you have any scientific background, sports gene, I think is a great read. Uh, hat tip to Austin for recommending Empire of Pain by Patrick Radenkeefe. Okay. Also, did you watch the Netflix series? On, yes. <laughs> uh, oh my God. Yeah. After have, so Empire of Pain is opioid addiction uh, in, in America, Oxycontin, the the Sackler family, all, uh-huh. Purdue Farm, the whole thing, and then having read that, and then watching the Netflix series, yeah. man, that's pretty great, inf- pretty infuri- infuriating stuff that uh, we went through. But yep, <laughs> yep. So I like that one a lot. Uh, Exercised by Daniel Lieberman, which I thought was a really cool like historical perspective of exercise, how it like uh, has been kind of how it's shifted over the years, uh, as far as in, in our culture and sort of, uh, different, uh, the different sort of, uh, ways that people engage in it. I thought that was a super interesting book. Uh, death of expertise by Tom Nichols. I read this and felt like just a burden lift off my shoulders as far <laughs> as like dealing with misinformation and disinformation. I just thought that was a really, it's almost like a cathartic read in a way. I just felt better afterwards. But I also think when you're, if you're trying to answer like a question about how do I determine if a particular individual's information is legit, like having read that book will give you some clues into like how to do that. Uh, I think that was a pretty good read. Did you, you read that book? Yes, I read, but I read that book and his more recent one, although his more recent one has a much more decidedly sociopolitical slant called our own worst enemy. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll save that one. Uh, my last, the last two books I have to recommend, these are like all timers that I recommend to everybody, particularly if you're interested at all in like science uh, and whatnot. The first one is Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky. Full disclosure, I have a man crush on Dr. Sapolsky. I think, I, like I've read, I think every book he's ever written and this is the first one. What a great text. I Really interesting stuff on stress, how it affects the human body, how our modern environment uh, is kind of setting us up for different sort of, uh, things we're experiencing as, uh, uh, you know, in, in society. So really interesting read there. Um, and then the my last recommendation is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. Also, I've read a ton of his other stuff. I, man, but that book, 
it's it's just it's a it's a series of short like sort of patient encounters um with people with different neurological diseases and uh yeah there was one where a man mistook his wife for a hat and uh yeah really interesting read did did you read that in maybe neuro or neuroanatomy or something I don't think I don't think I've read that one and so I based on how much you talk about uh Sax's stuff I need to I need to Dude. take a journey <laughs> yeah, ten out of t- ten out of ten would recommend. Uh, he's got a, his other book I really like was The Mind's Eye, and then he's got an autobiography. And the dude's cool. So he's a weightlifter, right? Apparently squatted six hundred pounds in a meet. He rode motorcycles, whatever. Uh, you know, and he's into to medicine. I'm like, hey, I like this guy. <laughs> we would have been friends, yeah. Yeah, we would have been would have been buddies. Um, anyway, okay, so those are my book recommendations. What what the, what do you have for the audience? Uh, I don't know that, I mean, some of these, I guess, would be all time. Some are just ones that I've read that I don't know that I've talked about on the podcast before. Um, so one is called Endure by Alex Hutchinson, probably in the same vein as Do Hard Things by Steve Magnus. But I think this one gets also into a little bit of the physiology around endurance performance and then also ties in a lot of the sports psych kind of mental uh, aspects of it. So a really good one. He's another like very high level uh, athlete dude. Uh, the second one is called Being Wrong by Katherine Schultz that I think a lot of people should familiarize themselves with uh, what it is like to be wrong and how to handle that uh, so that you don't act like an idiot, Uh, especially anybody who's listening who is a future clinician of any kind, meaning somebody who's going to work with patients, make diagnoses, things like that. Uh, Prepare yourself to be wrong uh, from time to time. And this book will kind of help you uh, do that, especially when sometimes you're wrong and it leads to a bad outcome, which can be tough to, to process. Um, the next one I've talked about a lot, uh, How Minds Change by David McCraney. He is the podcaster behind the You Are Not So Smart podcast. He's written, I think, a couple things at this point, but this is probably his what he would consider his uh, his, his life's work, uh, getting into belief change, which is kind of similarly, I don't know, important to us as, as is behavior change. Uh, those two topics are, are both super important. And so uh, th- that one is a really, really fascinating read into how we change our beliefs. And if you are hoping to have productive conversations with other people who have differing beliefs, how you can approach those things in a more productive fashion. Um, The next one is called The Urge, Our History of Addiction. I actually forget the author's name. I didn't uh, didn't jot it down. Uh, But this one is written by a actual psychiatrist. He's a physician who himself struggled with addiction. And That's, he uh, does Fisher, yeah, Fisher, Carl, Carl Fisher, yeah, Carl Fisher, um, psychiatrist who, um, it's, it's really interesting because it, the book opens up basically with his own personal journey of landing in a, you know, institutionalized due to complications of addiction himself. So he has both been through the process and he is an addiction psychiatrist and the book is a, it's creative. It's an interesting kind of way where he gives kind of parallel tracks going back and forth between discussing the history of addiction and the approach to addiction and and kind of broadly speaking, and then his own personal experience with it, which was very, very intense. Oh my. Yeah. (laughs) I, I, this is a a, a audible listen and I'm like, yeesh. Yeah. He was going through residency at the time. And I think it's just one that would help to uh, destigmatize a lot of this stuff, um, for, for folks as well to, to hear that. And then the last one, somewhat in a similar vein, poverty by America, um, written by Matthew Desmond. I actually learned about this from a, um, uh, Geronimo, uh, Bejarano. He's a guy who, um, has done, he's, he's kind of a, an acquaintance through the rehab world. And he's done some, some research, uh, in that, in that scene. And I saw him recommend it. And I said, let me, let me check this thing out. And, 
definitely another one that really gives you a ton of perspective on poverty and how it can impact all sorts of things in people's existence in ways that um, may be difficult to understand and again can help to destigmatize a lot of things. So I think that that would be another worthwhile read for people who want to, I don't know, learn about more of this and potentially advocate as well. I love it. That's our book. That's our book recommendation list. And that's uh, been episode 240 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me on this podcast. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Make sure to check out also our new our, uh, super seminar in Los Angeles coming up at the end of the month. Really like to see you there. And we'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.